Good morning, Bethel. We are going to uh, read our scripture reading now. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one, should be one in the pew there. And you can find our text on page 609. Page 609, it's Isaiah 49, and then the first few verses of chapter 50. If you wouldn't mind joining me in honor of God's word and stand as I read. And if after we're done reading, you're confused, that's okay. It's just piquing your curiosity so that we can study this thing together. Um, So there can be a lot of confusing things in here as we go along in our study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 49 and the beginning of chapter 50. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands." Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. 
Surely you're waste in your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you'll be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert and their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so it's been actually two and a half months since we've been in the book of Isaiah. We did a series called Gospel Culture where we talked about how the truths of the gospel should shape the culture of our relationships, of our church. So you can imagine, God is so, for instance, hospitable and gracious, and he's welcomed us in. What if the church was like, you know, us four, no more, shut the door? Like, that would just be horrible, because it would be undoing with our actions and our attitudes what we profess to be true with our words. So the truths of the gospel, the good news, should shape the nature of our relationships, and the nature of our church culture. And so um, two weeks ago, Tyler um, focused on hospitality, did a great job, and then Dwight was a blessing last week, um, not technically in the series, but he reinforced those themes from the Old Testament, from Judges 4 and 5. Um, I was really encouraged to listen to those two messages with being out for vacation. So let's just not let that gospel culture thing fall off the radar Um, We need to continue to cultivate that, continue to pray that that would characterize our church. Okay, so back to Isaiah for the rest of the summer here. And so here we are jumping back in at chapter 49. (laughs) And some of you might be visiting um, or you weren't here when we were going through Isaiah. So this is a little bit challenging. So let me just give you a little brief summary catch up. um, What leads us to this chapter? So Isaiah breaks down at the biggest level into two pieces, chapters 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66. And 1 to 39, it's a lot of bad news. So God's people, they were supposed to be God's people, but they're really unwilling to trust him. They rebel against him. He's this wise, loving, benevolent king, and they just, you know, 
Tell them to shove off left, right, and center. And so <laughs> their lives are not too much different than ours, even though sometimes we read this and think, what was going on? It's really, there's nothing new under the sun. They had a tendency in the midst of comfort to forget and ignore God as if they didn't need him. And then when the threats came, they had the tendency to run to everyone and everything but him for refuge and safety and deliverance and security. So God sent Isaiah. It was a gracious, merciful gift to send this prophet who warned them and tried to turn them away from their kind of self-destructive path. But their foreheads were like brass. I mean, they were just stubborn. In Isaiah 30, 15, it says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning to me and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. So historically what happened was that God actually raised up another nation, Babylon, to come in and judge them. And what happened was they basically burned the city to the ground and they carted off all the leaders to Babylon, like Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, all those stories. That's what happened because if you don't want this power, former power, to, to build back up, you take all the leaders out and you just leave a few poor peasants to, you know, deal with the ground. So that's what happened. So Isaiah, though, actually wasn't around for that destruction. He died about 100 years earlier. <laughs> and, and yet, God wanted to give a hopeful message to his people ahead of time so that they would have it when they finally did have ears to hear. Okay, so that's what happens in 40 to 66, the second half of the book. It's a word of promise. It's a word of hope that he is going to rescue them. So they spent like 70 years under the heavy hand of oppression in Babylon. Um, but when we get to chapter 40, the tone changes as God is trying to you know, tell his people, I'm going to bring you back home to Jerusalem. I'm going to deliver you. Okay? So <clears throat> let me just give you one quick quote here from a friend of mine, Drew Hunter. He's got a little Bible study on Isaiah, and he summarizes it well. He says, Isaiah 40 to 48 introduced the message of Israel's coming restoration. Through Cyrus, okay, this is the Babylonian king, God will bring his people home from exile and return them to their land. In addition to national restoration... God's people are also in need of spiritual salvation. Their deeper problem of sin and idolatry requires a deeper solution. According to Isaiah 49 to 55, this will be accomplished through the work of a servant who will die for the sins of God's people and emerge in victory, bringing about forgiveness and restoration. Isaiah 49 to 55 tells us that God's unrighteous people will be saved through the work of a righteous, suffering servant. Okay, so did you catch that? They thought that exile, their, their kind of like living situation, their circumstances, they thought that was the problem. They even thought God was the problem. Why isn't he delivering us? Has he forgotten about us? But he's soon going to show them that exile and being under the thumb of a foreign power, that wasn't their main problem. It wasn't political. It wasn't geographical. Yeah, Cyrus was God's servant, and he was a tool in his hand to bring his people back to Jerusalem, but they needed something deeper than that. They needed a, a liberation deeper than out of Babylon into Jerusalem. That deeper liberation could only be accomplished by somebody on a 
much higher pay grade than Cyrus. So Isaiah is prophesying about this servant, a greater servant, who's going to bring the ultimate liberation. Okay, so that brings us to chapter 49. But before we dive in, I want to just ask a question, because even though this is a story of what happened back then, it's how God works, and you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing for us. So think about the answer to this question in your own life. What is the biggest problem in your life? Is it financial? If you're in debt, or maybe you have a lot of pressure on you just to make ends meet. Is it job-related? Maybe your boss is just a jerk. Maybe they've just got totally unrealistic expectations. Maybe you just don't like what you do and you feel like you're stuck. Is your biggest problem your spouse? Is marriage troubles always looming? Is it depression? Is it body image issues? You're always thinking about that and just... Every time you look in the mirror, you just can't get away from it. Loneliness? Are you plagued by guilt? What is it for you? Like, how would you finish this sentence? If only, like if only this could change, then I'd be good. Well, guess what, okay? And I'm, I think if you know me, I'm not given to exaggeration. Our passage has the perfect solution to all our problems. So God's people in exile had problems too, just like us. The solution to their problems at the foundational level is the same solution that we need because our deepest problems are actually the same as theirs. Okay? So point number one. You see them on the, on the screen. There's also an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. So the perfect solution to all our problems and the solution is not an it. It's not a technique. You know, it's not five ways for this, you know, um, on the magazine cover. It's a who. It's the servant. And this servant is perfectly equipped for all of our problems. Look at verse 1 again. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So this, maybe this is a prophet. He's going to speak the word of God to us. He's going to give us the answers. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Hmm, so most liberators conquer with the sword. Maybe he's going to conquer with his words. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So he's ready for the proper time. He's equipped to do his work. And he's effective against enemies at close range, a sword, and... Long range, at a distance, arrows, right? He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Wait a second. So the, the servant is Israel, in whom I will be glorified? I thought Israel was the problem. I thought they were the, they were the ones in the mess. I thought the servant was supposed to alleviate the problems of the people of Israel. Well, this is a prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah. He was the true Israel. Okay, so Israel was supposed to be God's son, the apple of his eye. <clears throat> Israel, the people of God, were supposed to be a light to the nations. They failed, just like Adam, the son of God, failed. So Jesus is the true son of God. He's the true Israel. He was faithful, and he succeeded where they had failed. So, for instance, 
You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, how many days was he out there? Forty. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. So symbolically, they are in the wilderness 40 years. They failed. They grumbled. They complained. They turned away. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, tempted, tried. He's victorious. Okay? He's the true Israel. So look at his faithfulness, his steadfastness in the face of suffering. So he's suffering in our place. And so he's the true Israel. He's going to be our representative. He's going to die in our place. So he has to live the life that we haven't lived. And then he's going to die the death that we deserve to die in our place so that we can have the blessings that he deserves. Okay, so suffering and steadfastness. Look at verse 4. But I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Does that, does that sound a little weird if that's on the lips of Jesus? Does that throw you off? Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Okay, now don't forget, Jesus was fully human. And when he came, his own did not receive him. So he was repeatedly discouraged, grieved by rejection and hardness of heart. He never sinned, so he fought off that temptation successfully, but that doesn't mean he didn't feel that his labor was in vain at times. I mean, do you remember there was one time um, that someone brought their, their son who was, um, you know, demon-possessed to Jesus, or actually to, to the disciples, and they couldn't cast the, the, the demon out. And Jesus replied, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And he healed the boy. Or in his own hometown, they took offense at him. And he couldn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They just stiff-armed him. Or his own disciples. I mean, he just pours his life into these guys. And they are like as thick-headed as a big pig, you know? So this servant may feel he's laboring in vain at times, but he trusted his father. He knew that he would eventually reap the fruit of his labor. So this servant is perfectly equipped for his mission. Well, what's the mission? We'll look next at the scope of the mission in verses 5 to 6. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob, another term for who the people of God is, one of the fathers of the, the people of God, that Israel might be gathered to him. So this, the true Israel is going to restore the nation of Israel, the people. Okay? So he's not just going to take them from Babylon to Jerusalem. He's going to take them from the slavery to sin and bring them back into relationship with God. But that's not all. Look at verse 6. He, the Lord, says, it's too light a thing that you should just be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I have a global purpose here, a global mission for you to be a light to the nations that you would be my salvation to the end of the earth. Okay, so do you see it? This is Yahweh's servant Israel, God's servant Israel, and Israel's mission, true Israel, Jesus, his mission is to bring back his people, but then also be a light to the nations. And isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do? And his mission will not fail. Look at its effectiveness predicted in, in the next few verses, verses 7 to 13. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, Remember in 53? Some of us, the only, the only passage we're familiar with in Isaiah is chapter 53. 
and it says he was despised and rejected. Okay, same thing. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Okay, so one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. doesn't matter how powerful you are. So thus says the Lord, verse 8, In a time of favor I've answered you, in a day of salvation I've helped you, I will keep you and give you, give you. God is going to give his Son as a covenant to the people. That's exactly what was stated the first. So, so there's these songs about the servant in this latter half of Isaiah. The first one we looked at a while back in chapter 42. Listen to what it says there. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So that's how this gift of Jesus as a covenant for us is unpacked. And look how it's unpacked in our passage, same way. Look at verse 9. To say to the prisoners, come out. I'm here to free you. To those who are in darkness, appear. You know that song by Wesley, And Can It Be? There's that stands in there, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The light broke into the dungeon. And my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So does that resonate with your experience? If not, you can be free today if you see Jesus as the only one equipped and qualified to save you and rescue you, and you can run to him. Because see, our deepest problem is our sin. It's not our circumstances around us. Jesus is perfectly equipped to deal with that. He's the only one who is. He's the only one who can. So he was steadfast through suffering, and he was steadfast for you and for me. His mission wasn't just to his people. He came to be a light to the nations, all peoples, and he did accomplish his mission. Remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. And he will accomplish that mission to take that good news through us to the nations. He will receive the reward of his suffering. So the effectiveness, the scope of his mission, he doesn't just lead us out of the darkness of our slavery to sin and then just kind of leave us. He leads us all the way home. All the way, like if you were to use the the pattern of the first exodus, they came out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they went through the wilderness to the promised land. And that's actually the same thing for us. We come out of slavery to our sin. And this world is oftentimes like a wilderness, isn't it? But the promised land is coming, and Jesus is going to take us. He's going to lead us. He's going to be a shepherd to us the whole way. So look at the rest of 49, 9, and 10. It's like he's the shepherd, and we are the sheep. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights, shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Okay, so now you've got to see something where that shows up again in the Bible. Flip to Revelation 7, all the way at the back, last book of the Bible. It's on page 1032, if you're using the Pew Bible. 
This is great. So talking about the people of God, at the end when Jesus returns, look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in, their midst of, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Isn't that crazy? The lamb is the shepherd. So he's the lamb. He was sacrificed for our sins in our place. And he's the shepherd. He leads and guides us. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the good news at the end. Is that he leads us all the way home. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Okay, so how does this happen? It happens through the servant. He's gathering people not just from one nation, but from all nations. Look, look at verse 12. Go back to Isaiah 49. This mission is being accomplished. Verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and from the land of Syene, which I don't even really know where that is, but probably it just is a, is a reference to a remote place. In other words, you might not know where they're from, but God does, and he can bring them home. Okay, so the proper response to all of this, God is gathering his people from the four corners of the earth, and he's going to lead them all the way home. He's going to wipe their tears away, and everything is going to be made new. So the proper response to all this is, yes! <laughs> Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So, do you remember what it was like before you became a Christian? Like, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that sometimes you can do that are pretty fun, but you remember the guilt? Do you remember the shame? Do you remember trying to cover for that? Do you remember, like, knowing if you were ever honest with yourself that you haven't kept your own standards, let alone God's? Were you ready to die and face your judge? Like, no. And then do you remember the light breaking in and Jesus breaking the chains off of your soul and him rescuing you and freeing you and now he's leading you and feeding you spiritually, sustaining you all the way through the wilderness of this world, no matter what the circumstances are, whether it's good or whether it's bad? And he's going to do that all the way to the day of your death, and then he's going to bring you home to be with him. And he's going to wipe every tear away. I mean, if he is for you, who can be against you? Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear anything because he's with you. He's going to take us all the way home to the promised land where God is going to wipe away every tear. No more curse, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering anymore. So listen to this guy, Peter Kreeft. He's a, he's a philosopher up at Boston College. Um, he's a Christian. Now, suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have, free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can... 
can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less. A scratch on a penny. So how do we respond? To, to all this, I mean, here's this perfectly suited Savior to meet all of our needs, and he takes us from our deepest trouble, and he walks us through all the trouble of this life, and he takes us to a place where there's no more trouble. That's awesome. So how do we respond? Well, so often we respond just like these Israelites did. Yeah, but look at verse 14. But Zion said, Zion is a term for the people, like the place of Jerusalem, but the people of God, that supposed to be the people of God. The Lord has forsaken me. My, my Lord has forgotten me. We do this all the time. We make light of the greatest, like megatons of grace and mercy, his rescue of us and his promises to us, and we make a big deal out of our petty problems in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sort of way to God. I mean, we are notorious for yeah buts, aren't we? So there's all this grace, all these promises, and this is what we give God. Yeah, but... Alec Motier, he's an Old Testament scholar, he said, God's people would have been better employed, God's people would have been better employed in exercising her own memory than in accusing the Lord of losing his. He hadn't forgotten about them. So what should be done to these people? <laughs> Imagine if you had just been over the top, generous, merciful, gracious with somebody and they treat you like this, what would you do? <laughs> well then, You'd, you'd probably give them a piece of your mind. You'd probably you'd be done with them, right? Well, thankfully, that's not how he responds to us. Amazingly, rather than lashing out with rebuke, what does he do? He patiently, he mercifully appeals to them again and says, do you know what I'm like? <laughs> do, do you know me? Do you know my plans for you? What? Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she have no compassion on the son of her womb? I mean, hello, like, do you guys know what mothers are like? Go ask a few of them, you know. There's a few back there with nursing babes, okay. Brand new baby, Beth and, and Tom. Beth, would you be willing to be asked today? Um, do you think she could ever forget that child? No. Moms can be pulling their hair out with exasperation. They go run an errand for 60 minutes, and they miss their child, and they, like, can't wait to get back and see how they're doing. So God uses that as an illustration of how he thinks of us, even these. <laughs> like a mom would forget their nursing baby before I'd forget you. That's pretty awesome. That's good news. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. He doesn't say, I've engraved your name. He says, I've engraved you. That's pretty awesome. Sounds like nail-pierced hands on the cross, doesn't it? I died for you. See these wounds? They speak of the fact that I'm not going to forget you, that you are continually before me. Listen to uh, the old preacher in London back in the 1800s, Spurgeon. He just nails it when he says this. What can be more astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving word of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, 
How can I have forgotten you when I've engraved you on the palms of my hands? How dare you doubt my constant remembrance when the memorial is carved upon my own flesh? Oh, unbelief, what a strange marvel you are. We do not know what to wonder at most, the faithfulness of God or the unbelief of his people. He keeps his promise a thousand times, and yet the next trial makes us doubt him. He never fails. He is never a dry well. He is never as a setting sun, a passing meteor, or a melting vapor. And yet we are as continually troubled with anxieties, molested with suspicions, and disturbed with fears as if our God were a mirage in the desert. Behold is a word intended to stir our admiration. Here, indeed, we have a theme for marveling. Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels should obtain such a closeness to the heart of infinite love as to be written on the palms of his hands. I have engraved you. It does not say your name. The name is there, but that's not all. I've engraved you. Consider the depth of this. I have engraved your person, your image, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works. I've engraved you, everything about you, all that concerns you. I've put all this together here. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has engraved you on his own palms? End quote. So in the wake of their rebellion, the judgment that they face, the people of God, they, you know, when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, they languished. They were decimated, right? So so they shrunk in size. Rather than flourishing, proliferating, they languished. But when this servant succeeds in his mission, look at what happens in verse 19. It gets reversed. Surely you're wasting your desolate places in your devastated land. Surely now you'll be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow. So, so the city's like a mother, and the people are like the children. And the children start to proliferate, and they say, this isn't enough space for us. Okay? That's what's going on here. Then you'll say in your heart, who's borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? So she was the city, the people of God, were bereaved and barren on account of what they suffered and they declined all because of their sin. But by the work of the servant, they're going to suddenly and surprisingly grow and proliferate. And so the initial fulfillment of this was, yeah, they got back to Jerusalem and they started to multiply again. Okay, it wasn't just a bunch of little, a few little farmers you know, farming the meager resources, they were repopulated, reestablished. You can read the books of um, Ezra and Nehemiah and whatever. But the greater fulfillment that this points to comes through the greater servant, through the gospel. So what, <laughs> just think about this. What started, how did this whole thing start? A ragtag small group of thick-headed, like how, how big is your community group? You got like 12 adults, there you go. You want to turn into two two billion people plus? That's what we're talking about here. Twelve, one of them was a traitor. Thick-headed, selfish, prideful disciples. And now Christianity is the world's leading religion with over two billion professed adherents. What? How'd that happen? So, more specifically, do you know the story of, of China? Just recently, I mean, recently as in the last couple hundred years. So in China, the efforts of people like Hudson Taylor, 
They tried to take the gospel there. There were like 50 missionaries in 1860, about 2,000, a little over 2,000 by 1900. And then in the 50s, all the Protestant missionaries were kicked out by the communist government. And so maybe there were like 700,000 Christians or so estimated around that time. So is the church going to survive? How are they going to do? Well, then when things opened back up in the 70s, late 70s, um, early 80s, it was shocking to see how the church had grown. And some scholars believe that the number of Christians now in China is somewhere between 50 and 60 million. Some people estimate higher than that. And that China is on track to become the world's most populous Christian nation in the next 20 years. That's, that's this happening through who? Through Jesus, through the power of the gospel. And there's some crazy stuff happening in some very hard Muslim contexts. They seemed impossible to reach. Like they kill you if you try to come tell them the good news about Jesus. But it's happening because the servant is so powerful and equipped to accomplish his mission. So here's the question. Do you think that this applies to our outreach in Newcastle County? Little Bethel? With all these empty spots, you know, in the pews? I mean, I know it's holiday weekend and all, but... So... We're not where we were eight years ago. But I don't think we're where God wants us to be. And I think there's a very well-equipped Savior who knows how to help us reach this area. Like we might someday in the future look around and go, where did all these people come from? And we're not going to like go like this. It's the servant that's going to do this through us. So would you continue to pray with me? Remember, um, I have shared this a few times over the years, 5,500. Why not pray that we would see somebody come to Christ every week? And among our missionary families, multiply that by 10. People need Jesus. Your neighbors, your coworkers, there's no other hope. We've got really good news. Let's share it. So, verse 22, thus says the Lord God, let's see, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. Again, what does that mean to us? Well, a signal could refer to like an army's banner or a standard of a kingdom, okay? So, the other thing that it can refer to, back in the book of Numbers, you know that situation in the wilderness when um, because of their rebellion, God sent those fiery serpents. And then Moses put a bronze serpent on a pole, like a standard. It was a signal. And if you looked to that pole, you would be healed, right? Well, listen to John 3, 14, which is right before John 3, 16, which is, you know, everybody knows that verse. It's on every football game. Somebody's got it up on a on a poster, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, two verses earlier, earlier it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross. And whoever believes in him, looks to him, will have eternal life. He'll live because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the servant is going to be lifted up. I'm going to raise my signal, Christ on the cross. 
and he will draw all people to himself, like it says in John 12. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then we continue along in Isaiah 49. They shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you, lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and that those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Okay, so there's a lot of talk these days about being on the wrong side of history. Right? on this issue or that issue, well, this text makes it clear that no one who trusts in the Lord, who waits on the Lord, who puts their hope in the Lord, no one who does that will be shown to be on the wrong side of history when Jesus comes back. And that's really the only historical moment that really matters in eternity. When Jesus returns, is it going to be well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, or is it depart from me, I never knew you? So we need to know that. That those who wait for him, who trust in him, who hope in him, will not be put to shame. You'll never regret. Like, you could live for all kinds of things in this life. You get older, they disappoint you. Or you get to the end. Your money's not going to buy your way into heaven. Your accomplishments, you're not going to give God some resume and say, hey, like a back door even, you know, like third level down. I don't, I don't have to have like a, no, he doesn't grade on a curve. Those who trust in me, those who trust my servant who died in your place, they'll never be put to shame. You might be shamed in this life by other people. Oh, you're a Christian, Really? But at the end, you will not be put to shame. Whereas that will be flipped if you reject Jesus to run after something else. So we need to know that. We need to believe that because oftentimes we doubt it. We doubt God. We oftentimes misdiagnose our problems and we self-medicate rather than running to the only one who's the perfect solution to all of our problems. So do you know where your problems lie? And I actually mean that in both senses. Do you know where they are? Like, do you know what your deepest problems really are? And our problems actually lie to us. They make us think they're the biggest thing. The, the circumstantial, superficial stuff. So look at how it ends here in the first three verses of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. So, Two metaphors here. It could seem complicated, but it's really not. It's spoken to these exiles. They're children of Zion, okay, the mother city, and they've been separated from their mother. But here's the point. God hasn't divorced his people. He hasn't abandoned them, even though they feel that way. He never sent her away with divorce papers, because oftentimes God in the Old Testament speaks about his love of his people, like a husband and a, and a, and a wife. He never sent her away. It wasn't his lack of love. It was their infidelity. It was their sin. They walked away from him. So God didn't sell them to Babylon because he owed a debt that he couldn't pay. He doesn't owe anyone anything. He has no creditors. It was the debt of their sin that made them slaves. And the debt's actually owed to God. 
and God alone can forgive it. And he sent the servant to pay the debt so that they could be set free. And not just them, but you and me. So verse 2, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is, is the issue my problem or my, is my hand too short that I can't reach you? I can't redeem you? I can't, am I not powerful enough? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. So the issue is not God's inability to save. It's their inability to turn from their rebellion. He's the God of the exodus. He can just dry up the sea with his mere breath and carry his people through on dry ground. So the Israelites didn't know where their real problems were. They thought their greatest problems were out there in their circumstances. And we oftentimes do the same thing, right? And rather than just letting us blindly complain our way all the way into hell, God sent his perfect servant to rescue us from our greatest problem. So the hindrance to God's blessing in our lives is not in him. It's in us. The problem is our unresponsiveness, not his. Our unwillingness, not his. So we often think, if only, but the problem is not circumstantial. Our deepest problems are not circumstantial. They're spiritual. It's in our hearts. But you know what? Here's the good news. Again, we see this over and over again in the passage. If we own that, (laughs) if we just own that honestly, and we know we're needy, we need a rescuer, and we look out to find help, who do we see? the most amazingly willing, most perfectly qualified servant Savior who loves us and will take us all the way home. He is the solution to all of our problems. Do you believe that? <laughs> so let's, let's quit blaming and doubting God. Oh, I know we're not supposed to do that. No, we do that. We do that deep down. And let's repent and trust God and experience how good of a shepherd he is. The lamb who's also our shepherd, who died for us, rescued us, goes with us all the way through the wilderness, and is going to take us all the way home and wipe away every tear. So the communion table is a good place to do both of those, to quit blaming and doubting God and to repent and trust in him. So, Lord, forgive me for the ways that I've, I've made such light, um, uh, I've downsized your grace, and I've made my circumstances the big thing. What have you done for me lately? And trust him. You are such an awesome Savior. It's both of these things. When we come to the table, we examine our hearts and say, oh, I've wandered in this way, in this way. I need you to bring me back on the path. But then also we look and we feed on his grace and we know, I can't even believe how willing a savior you are. I deserve to just be kicked to the curb and you want to feed me more grace as my shepherd. That's what this table says. That's what this text says. Oh God, you are unbelievably patient and merciful and gracious. We see it in this passage. We see it all through the Bible. We see it in our lives. 
And we are really prone to downplay your faithfulness and your grace. We say, yeah, but, all the time. We think little of this humongous grace that you've poured out, and we, we think so much of our circumstances and think that if only. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reorient us this morning. I pray that you'd help us where we need to, to repent and get back on the path to do that, to examine our hearts. But, Lord, don't let us just look in and see our prone-to-wander heart. Help us to look up to our Savior, our perfectly equipped, amazingly merciful and gracious Savior. And I pray that it would just thrill us and fill us with gratitude and joy because you are ours and we are yours now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.